I'm Gregory Berg, and the following Morning Show podcast features an interview that dates all the way back to March of 1999. It's one of the only occasions in which Bill Guy and I co-hosted a morning show program. The reason we decided to co-host, and it was Bill's idea, was because we had an extra special guest joining us in the studios, the legendary entertainer Steve Allen, who had come to southeastern Wisconsin as a Johnson Distinguished Visitor to the campus of Carthage College. And as a matter of fact, I was very privileged to be his faculty host during his visit. And make sure to listen to the very, very end, because even after the interview itself had ended, the fun had not ended with Steve Allen. And I've included all of that audio right to the very end. Enjoy. Thank you, Bill. Good morning, everyone. And it is uh, indeed an exceptionally exciting day here at WGTD as we welcome into our studios for the morning show today one of America's most beloved and most honored entertainers, Steve Allen. He comes to southeastern Wisconsin under a couple of different auspices. He is, uh, was initially brought uh, to the area in conjunction with an event at Wingspread, uh, which I believe is occurring uh, today and tomorrow, uh, exploring the topic of civility. And uh, Mr. Allen will be at Wingspread uh, tomorrow to uh, give a presentation that I believe serves as kind of a wrap-up to that uh, event. And uh, Carthage College is pleased to uh, host him for uh, the next day and a half or so uh, as a Sam and Jean Johnson Distinguished Visitor. Mr. Allen will be visiting a number of classes uh, on the Carthage campus today, speaking at chapel this morning at 10.30. And uh, as we have been announcing, we'll be giving a public performance tonight in Siebert Chapel at 7.30 p.m. And I know that is an event that uh, many people uh, are looking forward to with great interest uh, and excitement. Uh, Steve Allen, it's a pleasure and honor to uh, welcome you to the morning show. I'm very happy to be with you, fellas. Thank you and oh, your listeners. Great. Uh, it is not an easy uh, assignment for us to try to uh, ask you about a, a distinguished career in entertainment that spans some 50 years and uh, well, a career, I'll be running along. <laughs> <laughs> and a career that uh, is still going strong and, of course, a career that has taken you into uh, all kinds of other venues as well, a career that also uh, has included over 50 books that you have written and over 7,000 songs that you have uh, composed. As you look back on all of that, is there much of anything that you uh, wish you had gotten around to? No, not really. Uh, if anyone had told me when I was 20 that I would do all that, I would have thought it highly unlikely. I recall a particular moment at Drake University in Des Moines uh, when the uh, teacher or professor of a course in radio production and radio techniques that I was taking said, uh, everybody get pencil and paper. I'm going to put a simple question to you, and I want you to write down a number quickly. I don't want you to come back Tuesday with a number. I want your immediate reaction. And he said, if you could make a deal with the world right now for a weekly salary that you think would be satisfactory in terms of your basic needs and you would be willing to live with for the rest of your life, what might it be? And I remember I wrote down $200 for the week. Accounting <laughs> for, <the laughs> <laughs> for inflation, of course, there'd be some raises. And, but it, seriously, that, that do, does strongly suggest that I had a very modest uh, assessment of my own abilities. And in fact, I wasn't even aware of them at that time. I was doing things, but somehow I never looked in the, in the psychological mirror and, and uh, raised any questions even in my own mind about how I could do things. 
So uh, it worked out all right. I just went ahead and did them. Here we are. <laughs> well, you are, of course, renowned for being so extraordinarily versatile. Uh, along the way, did people in the world of show business uh, advise you, guide you, pressure you to try to become something of a specialist, or have you always felt like you had the opportunity to use all these talents? Oddly enough, once I'd gotten into show business, uh, the first form of which was radio, uh, there was no such uh, pressure, but I did encounter it at the high school level, and just a little bit in college, and uh, it worked out like this. The English teachers drew me aside and said, now it's obvious that you're going to be a writer, a journalist, you're going to write somehow because you write well and you do your essays and your school papers and so forth. But, and then they would give me a little lecture, writing is a very demanding discipline and you must concentrate and if we may suggest stop all this playing with the school orchestras and horsing around in the school shows and all that <laughs> sort of thing. And then the, uh, the teacher in charge of plays and dramas would take me aside and make exactly the same suggestion. You're going to be an actor, you know, an entertainer of some kind. We can see that already. But uh, you really should concentrate on that because there are thousands of people competing with you, blah, blah. <laughs> and the music teachers would say the same thing. And uh, obviously, I couldn't accept any of their advice. I appreciated their, self in their interest in myself. But uh, I was not even able to entertain the abstract possibility of accepting their advice, but, uh, quite aside from the fact that it was mutually inconsistent exclusive, simply because whatever I do, it, uh, that's the way I'm programmed. When it's hot, I'm programmed to perspire. When, it, when I'm hungry, I'm programmed <laughs> to eat. I, nobody ever started to eat as a result of a intellectual abstraction. Uh, a lot of what we do has nothing much to do with the will. We just do it because we are humans, just as frogs do. Their, they jump because they're frogs. Hmm. They don't write poems or, you know, play checkers. Steve, when we talk about the many things you've done, we always mention TV and the books and the music and the rest. But you had a radio career before TV. Since we're on radio, could we talk a little bit about your experience? Sure. There? I'm tremendously lucky in that I had all those years in radio, which I didn't at the time perceive as a preparation for television. When I first started in radio, there was no television. But even when its existence had become apparent, uh, I, I can't think even now of a better preparation for television than radio. Uh, one of the things that annoys me about present-day television, at least, is there are too many people speaking much too loudly. Uh, I think the first outrageous offender in that regard was the man named Robin Leach. I don't know where he is now, but he used to shout everything, and I do mean everything. There were no exceptions, which is what the word everything means. <laughs> he would say, Good evening, welcome. You know, the first time I heard him, I, my brain said, shut up, hold it down, you know. But then finally he was followed by many others uh, to, to jump to the talk show field. If you compare the speaking level of Johnny Carson and Jack Parr and Merv Griffin, three eminent talk show people over the years, all of whom were on doing that for many years, did it very well, uh, to the volume of uh, Jay Leno, or David Letterman, uh, David and Jay speak at least twice as loud as the others. There's no reason for them to, I mean, no no necessary reason, because microphones are here. What's the mm -hmm. shout about? We have public address to systems and so forth. So therefore, we must look for a reason that accounts for their speaking so loudly, and it's that they came out of comedy clubs where half the audience is stoned and the brothers are rude and, and you sometimes have to dominate the crowd as if you were an animal trainer with a chair in your hand. 
and in such instances, it sometimes helps if you speak loudly and control the crowd, you know, the way that a rhetorician might. But even though that we have now identified the reason for it, I still don't like it. I wish people would speak the way they do when they run into you on the street or on a bus. You look back on your radio days with fondness? Oh, yes. It was all great fun. Uh, the great training ground was the three years I spent at a CBS station in uh, Phoenix when I first got into the business. And if I had had the money, I would have paid them for the privilege. Uh, they hired me as an announcer, and then once they discovered I could do several things, they immediately encouraged me to do all of them. They didn't pay me any more money, but I didn't care. My point was I was having great fun writing and producing and all the things one can do or could do then, I should say, in local radio. Uh, in those days, American radio stations, with a few exceptions, tried to be all things to all men, as the saying goes. Uh, but uh, now they are mostly specialized. Uh, there's a classical station, a jazz station, an old rock station, a new rock station, uh, an argumentative Rush Limbaugh-type station. There's all kinds of subdivisions now. When is it that the transition uh, was made uh, into television? And I wonder with what sort of trepidation you, uh, you uh, entered the, the field of television. Well, I had become so comfortable doing what I was doing then uh, at the end of a three, another three-year period uh, for the CBS station in Los Angeles, KNX, that uh, there was no trepidation at all. Um, oddly enough, I did never apply for work in television, but CBS then, which had long been established as an important radio network, as you know, was then opening up a, a, a television branch. And uh, since television had never existed before, the effect was very much like what would happen if they opened a new factory in Kenosha and suddenly needed 10,000 people to make uh, malted milk caps or whatever the product was, it's irrelevant. Uh, and the fact that nobody had ever made one before it wouldn't matter because you still have to get into production fast, so you have two or three people teach the other dummies how to make the, the bottle caps, <laughs> and uh, you start the, the business. So that was pretty much how it was in television. Obviously, a very lucky time. And, uh, today, it's much more competitive. <clears throat> if, if the same me came along today, I'm sure I wouldn't have the great luck, or if I ever did, it would be a, a much harder fight in those days they asked you to get into television. You didn't have to have to ask them. They drew from radio. They drew from actors who couldn't get hired anymore on, on Broadway or movies. A lot of has-beens in the early days, seriously, of, uh, of, of TV. And isn't, isn't it nice? <laughs> uh, so it, it was very easy then. As, as you uh, were involved in the early days of television, do you remember, I'm sure you do, how you looked at television and its potential. I mean, it seems like a lot of the people who were in television in those early, early days uh, at that point didn't have a clue where this medium was headed or how important it was going to be in American life. I don't think any of us did. I know I didn't. Uh, I was concerned with, what do I do today? What's, what's today's <laughs> show about or tonight's show? And after it was over, I thought, that's nice. Whoops, now i got to do a new one. I can't sit around all night and t say how marvelous it was that we just got off the air with that show. <laughs> So uh, all of us had our noses so close to the grindstone that there was no time to slow down and, and do some philosophical speculation about where we were all going. And it, in the long run, I guess it didn't matter. Uh, there was a winnowing out process around the mid-50s where they began to get rid, not so much as a conscious program, but it just happened that way, 
with a lot of the very minor talents who populated early television. We tend to think now in rather glamorous or romantic terms because we remember specific shows that were fine, like mm -hmm. The Honeymooners or the early, uh, whatever, the, the various shows, or Sid Caesar's show, Milton Berle's show, whatever we finally remember, and certain kid programs and that sort of thing. Because those shows were well done, that colors our view of the entire decade. But all during the glorious period of the 1950s, most of the shows were lousy. In, in fact, <laughs> on a sort of an averaged-out basis, television production is much better today in many easily uh, observable regards. If you've ever seen, if gone to a TV museum and seen some footage of the World Series or just the average Wednesday afternoon baseball game, you're astonished at its technological amateurishness. It looks mm. like your grandmother shot it with a home movie camera. The guys at home plate looked about one inch tall. Compare that with what they can do today, where you see nine takes on the same swing of the ball. You know, a close-up, <laughs> guy, the guy's face, his left feet, left foot, so forth. Uh, so the, the, the technology has advanced, and the knowledge of people to employ it is now very sophisticated and much more professional. And uh, some of the early comedy shows, especially the first year or two of the decade, also look very amateurish if you see them now. Uh, but pretty soon, because more people began to come into television who f at first uh, looked down their noses at it, they could see where it was going and they were suddenly available, whereas they'd said, no, thank you, two or three years early. Uh, television got better so that by the time we reached, say, 1955 or six. There were quite a few good shows on the air, along with the, the usual garbage. <laughs> Steve Allen is our guest here on the morning show today on WGTD FM 91.1. Steve, when we think back to the 1950s, it was a golden age, if you will, of variety shows. Comedy they, shows. They, yes. were all, they were all over the place. There were the Dorsey Brothers and mm -hmm. you and Ed Sullivan and Milton Berle and, mm -hmm. and all the rest. There was a good deal of competition, I would guess, I would guess at that time for the the guests, for hot guests, for between all those shows? There was some, yes. Um, the first time I was actually placed in a competitive situation was when I was moved into the 8 o'clock Sunday night uh, spot on NBC. The reason that was competitive was that uh, there had, even then, that early, and that was 1956, I guess, uh, been a long tradition of just watching Ed Sullivan. That was what mm -hmm. one did on Sunday nights at 8 o'clock. You didn't even bother about the other station, uh, stations or networks. And uh, NBC, of course, was not happy about that. And they had put some very big, important performers in opposite Ed. And I could have told them why that didn't work, but uh, they didn't ask me. <laughs> what they were doing was putting a different big star in one at a time. It would be D Martin Lewis one week, Jimmy Durante the next, uh, Milton Berle the next, and so forth. And you can't, with that one-shot approach, successfully compete against a, a, an established viewing pattern, a habit. Uh, but uh, So they, I guess they finally figured that out. They, so they put me in there on a <coughs> semi permanent basis. We're all on, on borrowed time in television. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there for the next few years, and it worked out well for them. The story of your having Elvis Presley on your show is, is quite well known. You can tell it if you'd like. But I'm a little more interested in some of the other people you've had who don't kind of don't seem like Steve Allen guys. I'm thinking of Lenny Bruce and Bob Dylan, among others. Uh, 
Yeah, in Len, the case of Lenny Bruce, he was a personal friend, and I, as just as a person who loves to laugh and appreciates and analyzes comedy, since I came out of it, my, my family did comedy, uh, I always had the greatest respect for Lenny. He, he would never, when he was on my show in the 1950s, he was one of the many great comedians who would never have dreamed of doing anything the least bit vulgar uh, on television. And we didn't have to speak to him about it. He, it was just a given. You know, it was like saying, by the way, when you go out of the house today, be sure to breathe. You know, people would think you were nuts <laughs> if you made that recommendation. It, it, it's a good thing to breathe. But the point was, who needs to bring it up? We're going out and breathe whether you tell me or not. So people just went out on stage and were funny. You didn't have to tell them, don't be dirty. So that was why I booked Lenny and approved his work. Uh, also, I, I, I strongly object, or differ, when today people hear me criticizing some disgustingly vulgar comedian and they respond by saying, well, you like Lenny Bruce and he worked that way. No, he did not work that way. All the four-letter word and, you know, the, the, the S word, the F word, all that stuff. He never did that. Sometimes in clubs at, you know, midnight or whatever, he would use some shocking language, but never for the purposes they do now, just for a cheap shock laugh. There are many jokes which, if you just took out the, the, the rotten words, are still just as funny. In fact, funnier, because you're not displeasing anybody. It's all just, just fun, good jokes. But uh, Lenny was a true comic philosopher. If you Sometimes young people come to me and say, how can I do, I, I do kind of hip comedy, a little like what you did, a little like what Dennis Moore does or whatever. You have any advice for me? I say, yeah, get every Lenny Bruce album ever produced and study him for about six months and then call me. And you won't need to call me because you will have gotten the idea by then. Lenny is still hipper today, long dead, than any of the young comedians who think they're hip now. Some of them are, but they're not as hip as he was. Uh, as regards Bob Dylan, that's a better question. First of all, I, I did not personally pass uh, aesthetic approval on every person who's a, who appeared on my shows as a guest. <laughs> uh, I had no objection to booking Dylan. I, I knew very little about him at that time. And not only I, but everybody in the studio audience was rather surprised when he performed, because I probably used the word singer, here's a young singer, blah, blah, blah. And the general perception in the studio was, that's singing? You know, because we were used to Frank Sinatra, that's mm -hmm. definitely singing, Bing Crosby, Joe Williams, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, <coughs> we know what singing is. He didn't do any of that. He never he had a lousy voice. He was no, not, not a real singer. But he, too, had an element of social philosophy to his work. He was really a lyricist who had to get something melodic going, otherwise mm. nobody would have listened to him reciting his words. So uh, he was a, a unique, one-of-a-kind phenomenon. But uh, I was not among his great fans, as, a, as just in terms of a performer. He could not electrify a room. Although I'm sure there were people who were 15 at the time and would have said, oh, he electrifies me. <laughs> Speaking of uh, electrifying performers, uh, another big name from the, that day that I know you encountered on at least one occasion on your programs uh, was Jerry Lee Lewis. Yes. Uh, there was a remarkable film of Jerry's life called Great Balls of Fire in which uh, I play myself. It came out about five or six years ago. And uh, I don't remember now how it came, out, uh, came about that we booked him, but uh, it was a, a big night for us. We got a big rating, and Jerry later named his either... One of his sons, or his first son, I can't recall, after me, called him Steve Allen Lewis, 
Uh, and because he was so grateful, I didn't know that that time I booked him was a, a sort of a temporary slump in his career. He had just been subjected to a lot of uh, very heavy critical publicity because he married a woman who was, what was she, 14 at the time, something of that sort. I don't care about that, but the world got all disgusted about it. And uh, anyway, when we booked him, it was suddenly as if to say, he's okay here, he is on a big important show, you know, so think of him what you will on your own moral grounds. Today, this, that sort of thing wouldn't be objectionable at all. It shows you how far we've uh, fallen. I find that fascinating. Do you, do you remember weighing that decision carefully, or was that a difficult decision to welcome him no, onto the, your the show? No, the truth was I really didn't know much about it. Uh, I, I, I am a compulsive reader and studier and thinker. <laughs> I, I, I don't take any credit for that. I just can't function any other way. As soon as I get out of bed, I begin worrying about the world's problems. And uh, I was just too busy to give much thought to what rock and rollers did when they were not on stage rocking and rolling. I, I never paid any attention to it. So somebody came into the office one day and said, this guy is big, let's book him. And I said, okay, that was all there was to it. There was no study. Steve, on uh, your variety shows, you had a, a repertoire company of uh, outstanding comic actors, Tom Poston, who I don't think has been out of work in 40 years. I mean, right. He's doing... He's doing yeah. Radio voiceovers and like Don Knotts, Bill Dana, Louis Nye, mm -hmm. Dayton Allen, and like. How did you find those guys? Uh, one at a time. Uh, I was at the time when I, the Sunday night show started, also doing still the Tonight Show, five nights a week, and for 90 minutes a night, sometimes even longer than that, because we had local commitments in New York. And uh, I was having such fun that it didn't occur to me I was carrying an incredible workload. But after a few months, it did. And I finally abandoned the uh, Tonight Show to concentrate on the more important uh, primetime show. Uh, but on the uh, Tonight Show, naturally, I didn't want to do a one-man show for 90 minutes a night, nor did the world want me to. But uh, therefore, we would book guests with heavy emphasis on comedians. So I saw a lot of the new ones coming up. And the, the timing was lucky for, for Don and Louie in that I had already had fun with them on the Tonight Shows, so as we eased into the uh, the crossover, into the primetime concentration, I just brought them along with me, so that's how they they showed up. Tom used to just hang around the office. He was not a stand-up comedian, and never mm -hmm. has been for that matter. He was just a guy who had worked in some plays in New York in comedy roles, but that, that kind of funniness is totally different from what Louie and Don were doing. So uh, the, the writers liked him and tried to think up some character that he could play on what we were then already doing called Man on the Street, which parenthetically was never created. It was just a, what had been a journalistic staple for over a century, where there's a question of the day, the editor sends out an inquiring reporter, and later a photographer, and they say to everybody, do you think Barbara Walters should have interviewed Monica Lewinsky or whatever the question of the moment is? Three or four people give their answers, and then it's in the newspaper. We were just uh, spoofing, as they say, to use a dumb word, that old journalistic uh, formula. But uh, the writers dreamed up for, for Tom a character that was so dumb he couldn't even remember his own name. And uh, <laughs> silly as it sounds, it worked for, for several years. That's how he joined us. Then Bill Dana was already on my writing staff. He had a good track record as a comedy writer. In fact, he, he wrote those now famous monologues that launched... Don Adams' career, 
Don Adams was uh, originally better known as an impressionist than a comedian, and one of his best impressions, in fact, he was the only one doing it, was that of a once favorite, famous actor named William Powell, who did all those Thin Man movies, sure. and he used to talk like this. You see, Inspector, what you didn't realize, so Don did that impression. That's not how he talks at all in reality. And uh, Bill wrote those marvelous, uh, Your Honor, for the last 45 minutes, the prosecuting attorney has made a complete ass of himself. Now it's my turn. You know, those great jokes <laughs> like that. So uh, I'll tell Bill you laugh. Anyway, it worked out well for Bill. So I had noticed just in hanging around socially backstage with Bill and at the office that he was a great dialectician. He, he not only could do that voice as well as Don Adams did, <laughs> But uh, he also did different uh, ethnic and racial dialects and so forth. So the first one he was, I kept saying, why don't you write yourself into a sketch or two? So the first time he did it was a, a vaguely Latino uh, accent, and we called the character Jose Jimenez. And that's how he joined us. And with Dayton Allen, uh, I don't know where we found him, but he was just so obviously funny in a goofy way that he became part of the family. Uh, we found Tim Conway later in, uh, in Cleveland working at a local station. So it was, as they say, individual stories in each case. Could you tell us about the, uh, the um, stint you and uh, your wife, Jane Meadows, did on Homicide? Mm-hmm. We had a few years earlier worked on that marvelous series, uh, St. Elsewhere, the, the, the hospital-based series. And uh, the producers uh, were kindly disposed. In fact, it turns out that when they were all teenagers, they used to watch our old Sunday night show, so they brought, uh, as guests into the St. Elsewhere structure, uh, Louis Nye, uh, Bill Dana, Tom Poston, myself, Don Knotts, and cast us as parents of some of their regular younger characters. I forget whose parents we... Oh, you know, I do remember. Ed Begley, Jr., the, the blonde mm -hmm. fellow. And uh, anyway, that worked out so well that the producers then thereafter held us in high regard, shall we say. And when they found out we could also act as well as be funny... So uh, they had been saying, we want you on the Homicide Show. And finally, about two or three years later, the, the, the moment came when they called us and said, we have a script. You think We think we, you would be right for it. So they, we did it. Wow. What do you watch on TV these days? There's only one show, literally, that I make it a point to watch. We actually build our Sunday evening schedule around it. Jane and I are habituated to watching it, and that is 60 Minutes. And I like all shows of that type. It's just that Sunday night happens to be a little mm -hmm. more convenient for watching. I don't, compared to the average TV uh, pattern, I watch very little television. It's not that I turn my back on it. I'm just too busy. I work seven <laughs> days a week. But I, I do uh, watch shows like 2020, Primetime, and all programs of, the, of that formula. They're a great use of television. And also they give you a blessed 60 minutes when you're not listening to a situation comedy with a lot of dirty jokes and <laughs> sexual irresponsibility behavior and so forth. I know you're also a fan of non-commercial uh, television broadcasting. Yes, uh, television and radio. Hooray for PBS, hooray for NPR. They are so <coughs> civilized. Uh, you guys are, are, are making intelligent use of, of uh, your radio access here. But American radio has, has really been a, a largely in recent years a force for destructive influence. Uh, either there's political fanaticism of, of one sort or another, 
or there's rude, abusive, uncivil talk of the Rush Limbaugh sort. He's not the only one doing it. He's just the worst offender. If you if you are a, a conservative, listen to George Will or Bill Buckley or you know scholarly, gentlemanly people. Unfortunately, I've said that to some callers on the phone and some others, and they actually prefer the Rush Limbaugh rude barroom drunk brawling approach to communication on these issues to that of much higher-minded, much more intelligent, much more articulate conservatives. That's a scary fact, but it is a fact. One of the things that I think is curious in uh, the history of television is the demise of the variety show that uh, had such a, a heyday in the 50s and mm -hmm. into the 60s to a lesser extent into the 70s and is all but altogether vanished from the, yeah. the uh, landscape. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think is the cause of that? Well, the immediate cause... Uh, is that the networks believe, and, and may be correct in believing, that such shows won't get big ratings now. The, the networks, I guess most people listening, if they're over 20, understand that networks have no serious interest in the quality of shows. That sounds like an awful thing to say, but it is the case. That's why one must say it. And it's before we go and try to burn down NBC or, or lynch the, the, the man running it at the moment, who probably six months from now won't be running it, and this is true of all networks and all jobs in our industry, for that matter. Uh, we must realize the assignment they are given when they are hired. They are not given the assignment to produce shows. Many of them wouldn't literally even know how. They, they don't produce the shows. They call Warner Brothers or Fox to produce the show or their cousin or somebody. They are hired to get bigger ratings than the man before them in that chair got. It's that simple. And if they do a good job of that, if their ratings go up, even if it's by putting on such hideous material as Howard Stern on television, the stockholders are very content with them and their job is secure. On the other hand, if they win 14 Emmys, but the ratings are a little bit lower this year, they are usually out of there pretty quickly. And I, I'm not exaggeration, exaggerating. <laughs> i got to get a room tonight, <laughs> we used to say in vaudeville. Uh, I'm not exaggerating by saying that. So th that's one reason that television will never be great, and, and that's why we have PBS and, and uh, other alternative things to do with our time. We're talking today with Steve Allen here on The Morning Show on WGTD, FM 91.1. Steve, you've done a, a good deal of writing and thinking about humor. And what's funny? What is funny? <laughs> yeah, you'd think I'd be able to just answer this with some sort of scientific authority, having written seven books about humor. But uh, the essence uh, of the material being analyzed is always elusive. Uh, therefore, one can say what is funny is anything that people laugh at. And you might say and point out some monstrous, hideous, ugly example of things that are people laughing at. I don't think it's funny. You don't. But there are thousands who do. So this puts me in mind of a, uh, an unfortunate and wrong thing once said by a woman named Dorothy Kilgallen, who's totally unknown today, but was very important in the 50s. She was by profession a journalist, a columnist. And I work with her on the old What's My Line panel show. Anyway, in, in her column one day, she said something very close to this. She said, I've never thought very much of W.C. Fields as a comedian. I never understood all the hullabaloo and all the scholarly articles praising him. She said, but I tried to keep an open mind on the subject. And the other night, I watched one of his own 
his old films, and I now realize I was right. W.C. Fields was not funny. That's like saying Michael Jordan doesn't play basketball very well. It was really a stupid statement. Nevertheless, if we qualify Dorothy's dumb saying uh, as applying only to herself, she was right. If she never laughed at W.C. Fields, then to her, he was not funny. And this is true of all of us. Uh, most of us don't you know, make mistakes that big or not make them in print anyway. But uh, as the old saying goes, there's no accounting for taste. I first began to analyze that strange thing in the process of writing my first book on humor, which was called uh, The Funny People. There, was, there were essays about 12 then popular people getting laughs in television. And uh, in preparation, in addition to my own ideas, I thought I should take some kind of a survey or whatever. So I just uh, drew up a list of about, I don't know, 50 comedians uh, in uh, al alphabetical order. Then on the right side of the page, there were blank lines. And the instructions were, to those who took the test, simply to reconstitute the list, but now in the order of your preference. If you think Jimmy Durante's the funniest, he's number one, and so forth. And as I had anticipated, the results proved almost nothing except that there's a wide range of taste. <laughs> Jimmy Durante would be number two on one list and 37 on another, and the people were giving their opinion. You know. And uh, as I looked in the mirror, I realized I was the same way. Uh, some people have been enormously popular. Personally, they never struck me funny. So you, you can't be criticized for that. It, it's like being criticized for the fact that you like or dislike rhubarb, you know, in, in mm. terms of what you want to put in your mouth. Uh, George Bush told us he didn't like, what was it, broccoli? Broccoli. So that we did not run him out of office for that. We Most of us would disagree with him, but he's entitled to his opinion. Mm. Who's funny? Uh, I'm a good audience out front because I'm, I readily laugh, and I, I think the whole universe is ridiculous in, in a very literal sense, which I can explain at some other time. <laughs> But uh, so I, I, I laugh at probably 90% of professional comedians, the, the famous ones and, and the ones you never heard of until last night. But the odder, a much odder thing is that there are some very well-established comedians who, for whatever reason, <coughs> mysterious even to me, I have never laughed at. I don't say they're no good because they're big stars and, and I appreciate There are some people who become stars and many of us, in the, in the comedy business, think they're they're lucky. We don't understand what what, what all the, the success is about because they don't really deserve it. But I'm not talking about those cases. I'm talking about people who are. I wish I could give you a name, but I obviously can't. I mean, I obviously won't. Uh, but I've still never laughed at them. Uh, once they pass away, then maybe I'll give you some of the names. <laughs> but but that's true again of all of us. I would think too. Part of this, what makes this question a bit complex is the fact that uh, one of your great concerns is with the content that a lot of stand-up comedians choose or the writers of comedy shows uh, choose to focus on in, in this day and age. And yet at the same time, you're also concerned that, that whatever is put out there's entertainment be high quality. And sometimes it's an interesting trade-off between uh, mm -hmm. something that might be very safe and very clean and yet... Uh, Not too funny. Right. Yeah, yeah. this is a, a serious uh, social problem. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Parents Television Council, which is running a series of uh, attention-getting ads uh, in newspapers across the country. It was in USA Today just yesterday. Uh, I think the majority of American television viewers, uh, and uh, certainly uh, I know the majority of American people, 
not all of whom are also television viewers or radio listeners, are concerned about this. If uh, we lift one factor or another out of this big social equation, for example, if we imagine for the moment that suddenly tomorrow morning there are no children in our country anymore, we don't know where they went, but they're not around, then I, I probably wouldn't go on speaking about this issue. But when I see my grandchildren, or and earlier my children, subjected to, to the most vile, disgusting uh, affair under the guise of entertainment, I literally get angry. And uh, I think when people get angry, they should not do things like hit other people or you know smash windows or burn down neighborhoods, but they should do something constructive. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Of course, everybody feels his anger is righteous, but that's a <laughs> tempting digression we won't get into. But uh, uh, I'm writing uh, about this. I'm doing a book on that issue at the moment, and whenever the occasion comes up, as at the moment, I speak out on it. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you're right, I agree with you, it's disgusting, but what can we do? The implication being they can't do anything. They're throwing up their hands. No, no, wrong. You can do something. You can write letters. They ideally should be typed. It's sometimes hard to read strangers' handwriting. And they shouldn't be too long, because too long means it's not likely to get read all the way to the finish. Keep it to one page if you can. And uh, don't froth at the mouth. Don't threaten or you know do any nasty things yourself. But uh, write to the CEOs of the major corporations, and I mean of world importance, that sponsor these programs in many cases, or run the networks, or run your local station for that matter, radio or TV, and just explain that you object and that he'll know why, because he knew what he was doing when he put the garbage on the radio or the TV. And ask the man if he has children or grandchildren. Uh, a man named Ken Auletta, A-U-L-E-T-T-A, one of the editors of The New Yorker, a few years ago, I think 1993, wrote a marvelous uh, essay. He had written to about 20 of the leading production company CEOs, Warners, Fox, uh, Columbia, Sony, so forth, and asked them all the same question. Would you want your own children to see some of the movies that you are producing and the answer if you put it all in a blender and, and poured it out was well no not really but blah 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 about the constitution and so forth <laughs> and the answers were very revealing I've distributed a lot of copies of Mr. Oletta's article so this is a matter and it should be for major concern uh, as regards now the matter of writing letters of protest if you belong to any organization, whether it's the Lutheran Church or a, a, a local bowling team or the Knights of Columbus or, you know, the supporters of Red Skelton and Memoriam or whatever it is, almost all organizations have their own stationery, and uh, literature of that sort, uh, letters of that sort, get a little faster attention than uh, solo letters. So do that sort of thing. And... and uh, we all know we're in the business that eight or ten letters don't get a much of, of, of attention. Mm -hmm. But 119 letters get a lot of attention. And there are millions of people burned up about this, so they have the potential to bring a lot of pressure, but they must go to the extreme of exercising that potential. Uh, tell us about the uh, the full-page ad that was taken out in USA Today uh, yesterday mm -hmm. around this uh, this uh, very issue and and what sort of greater effort that that represents? Well, it's an example of doing something, obviously. The Parents Television Council people came to me, seems about 
10, 12 months ago, after they had noticed that I'd been seeing pretty much the same things, the same things I've been saying here the last few minutes, for about 10 or 12 years, and uh, they had collected some of my writings on the issue, and then they had noticed that about a year ago, uh, I was invited to give the keynote speech by the Canadian television industry, which is enormous. And uh, they had a convention at that lovely community, Banff, uh, in, in the mountains up north. And I figured, oh, what a great opportunity to bring up this issue. I had no idea whether it was of much concern to people in Canada, but I thought, I don't care, I'll say what I want. And they didn't care either what I said as long as I showed up and spoke. So I wouldn't have cared if somebody told me in advance, you know, none of them will like what you have to say. I still would have said what I had to say. So the great news is that there was about roughly an 85% approval rating right there in the hall and in the, the, the hotel the next two or three days. Uh, and there was only a small negative reaction, and there were a few neutrals. So uh, this speech, the actual copies of the speech, came to the attention of the Parents Television Council. So they came to me and said, do you want to work with us? I said, fine. So that's how that happened. And uh, their immediate approach was to start with a donation by a gentleman. I don't even know who he is, but somebody gave them, whatever, $100,000, because he felt so incensed about this. With that money, they bought uh, full-page ads. And the ad contains uh, a little separate box with a coupon uh, telling us that if you agree with this message, please send us some money. And all the money received will be used to buy more ad space and more newspapers. So, so far, the reaction has greatly exceeded what was expected. They have hundreds of thousands of letters that have now been received. And... Uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal then asked me to write an essay on this, and I, uh, referring to the ad, I, I recalled, because of the relevance, of an old joke in the early part of the century, and even in the last century, American humor, popular humor, street humor, had a lot to do with rural concerns. Remember all the jokes about the farmer's daughter and the traveling salesman, all the, a lot of jokes about farms, animals, all that sort of thing. And uh, anyway, in the old joke, from about 1906, I think, a farmer has terrible trouble organizing the activities of one particular mule, which is the most obstinate he's ever seen. And he's just about ready to give up. A stranger comes down the road and says, I can help you with that mule. And the farmer says, oh, please, go right ahead. So the stranger picks up a club and whacks the poor animal over the head unmercifully. The farmer, puzzled, says, why did you do that? He says, well, first you've got to get their attention. So these full-page ads are a way of getting the attention of the, uh, the television industry, and they have served perfectly well in that connection. We've had some meetings with the leading sponsors, with leading network executives, and they are now well aware that they have a problem. Steve, uh, during your visit here to southeastern Wisconsin, you're going to be taking part in a, a Johnson Foundation conference at Wingspread on the issue of civility, and this is something I know, again, that you've written a good deal about. Mm -hmm. Could you share some of your concerns with civility or the lack of it today? Yes. Well, th there is a general coarsening of our culture. It relates partly to the vulgarity problem that we've been discussing, uh, although it, they, they are two separate issues that overlap in an obvious way. Uh, it's easy to refer in this, as in many other ethical or moral contexts, to the golden rule. It, it seems to me that there has always been human morality, uh, 
we can literally trace, in, in especially in recent centuries, the exact day before which there was no Mormon church, no Lutheran church or whatever. And it would be silly to say there was no morality before that point. And, and some people would say, well, of course there was the Jewish. But even before that, it's reasonable to assume that if one caveman 100,000 years ago walked up to another and hit him over the head, the man whose head was hit would have an immediate moral reaction. He might have several others. <laughs> he might respond by murdering the man who hit him. But it would be on the basis of moral considerations. It is not right to hit me with a club. So uh, and nothing more complex than that. I think a lot of people uh, are concerned about the rudeness, the, as I said, the lack of manners, because the problem is manifest in so many areas. For years now, it's been very annoying, at least for <laughs> sensitive people, to go to the theater. In the old days, you used to go to a theater, a comedy or a drama. You would either laugh or cry or whatever. And you didn't have to worry about people around you making noise. Now you do. There may be only 3% of the people in the room, but nine such people can spoil an evening for the others, you know. I, I just said you know in a way that I, dis <laughs> I disagree with. <laughs> Let that record reflect that's my first such offense this morning. It's true. And I have a long day ahead of me. <laughs> so there, we all know that we don't like to be spoken too rudely or too loudly or to have people spit on us or whatever. So we shouldn't do it to other people. But even if you've never heard of the golden rule or don't perceive its simple point, sometimes at least the thing about things that are wrong is that it's obvious they are wrong. Uh, some of them are classic wrongs, and I guess we could invent a few brand new ones now if challenged. But the wrongness would be very apparent. And wrongness, or to use an old-fashioned word, evil, must be opposed. I was looking through your, your book, Dumpf, and I think we should probably tell people just what Dumpf is. <laughs> Well, it, it, it is two things. First of all, it is, as you've suggested, a book. That's the title of a new book. And uh, it addresses the problem that the American people are getting demonstrably dumber. This is not just my personal hunch. It's been all too painfully uh, documented. And everyone now, at least every concerned person, is aware of the problem. Uh, dump is just my own word for it. It's a combination of ignorance, stupidity, uh, which is manifest often by inefficiency. America was once, the United States was once world famous for the efficiency of its uh, service personnel. And uh, I doubt if we are any longer. I'm sure some of us are, but the, the nation as a whole can no longer make such boasts. And since I have always traveled a good deal in connection with my work, even in infancy I travel a lot, my family were entertainers, uh, I have personally witnessed the erosion of efficiency, and you see it in simple ways. Uh, I, I have never in my life, literally never, demanded a, a limousine to take me any place. But sometimes, if I'm going to Chicago to make a speech, the organization that's bringing me in will provide one. I don't care if they provide a pickup truck, but anyway, to get to the point, <laughs> in the old days, limousines were always there when you expected them. The driver knew where to take you. And it was that simple, because it really is a very simple thing, guys. It's not to do all day except to drive his car, pick somebody up, take him someplace. Uh, what, what job could be simpler? We should all have such simplicity in our work. Nevertheless, despite that simplicity, some years back, the limousine service began to be very uh, unsatisfactory. First of all, either they wouldn't show up at all, and I'd get a letter of apology a week later if the man hurt his foot or whatever the reason was. 
then very often, to this day, I get in the back of the car and the guy says, where to, chief? And I say, boy, if you don't know either, we're in big trouble. <laughs> and I, I, I literally always say, do you have a phone there? He says, yes. I said, well, you better call your dispatcher right now. I don't know where we're going. You know, I never was in this town before or whatever oh, my, my situation is. <laughs> and it never ends. It's, it's in laundries. It's in cleaning. It's in people that come to your house to fix things and end up breaking them. It's a national problem. So that's what my book is about. But it has the subtitle. 101 Ways to Reason Better and Improve Your Mind. So it offers not only a diagnosis, but a prescription. I was going to say that that's an important combination, isn't it, to spell out what is a, a frightening problem, but also some concrete ways that it can be addressed. Yeah, and many of them are quite simple. Uh, some of them are, are, are not simple, they're a little complex, and I didn't think of them myself in recent years. But any bright 10-year-old could have told you how to deal with some of these problems. For example, one of the motivating moments that led me to get hard at work on the book was, and it's in the text in the first few pages, uh, Jane and I were watching the evening newscast uh, one night, the network evening newscast, and there was a brief feature about the degree of knowledge about simple geography. I emphasize simple because none of us know about the borders of Poland in 1787 and so forth, but simple stuff. Uh, and the people who had or had not the knowledge were members, students in a geography class at the world-famous University of Miami. And the degree of ignorance of these kids was astonishing. Uh, I won't, won't go through the whole cover, cover the whole feature, but uh, one of these statistics was that 8% of these college students, they all looked about 19 on camera, had no idea where Miami was. They were in it, but they did not know where they were, except in an abstract sense. They would, if they said, what town are we in, they'd say Miami, but they didn't know where it was. In other words, they couldn't put the black dot on a map with mm -hmm. any degree of accuracy. Uh, that sounds almost comic, but they also didn't know much about where Vietnam was and a lot of things that they should know. Korea meant nothing to, to even this week, Korea means nothing as to where it is. Most of the American kids have no idea. So that's an example of where the solution is so obvious. Here it comes in two words. Use maps. That's as simple as you can get. So uh, anyway, there are 101 such suggestions in the book. And one of my favorites, well, I have two favorites among that big list. One of them is learn how to learn, yes. which, of course, uh, generates all sorts of, of good things happening for people if... Sure. If that love of learning itself is there. Yeah. And the love of reading, uh, yeah. You also say I, something about uh, decide that you will continue your education unto death. Yes. The point being that it does continue unto death, but if you notice that, or if you're aware of it, uh, you can control it better than letting it just uh, <laughs> wash all over <laughs> you as it might, in which case you'll learn a lot of terrible things, too. But it, the old saying, we learn something new every day, is literally true. Not all of it is great stuff, but we do learn it. And it can be great stuff if you just uh, keep that in mind, that you, you'll never finish your education. And if you could and decided to, you'd be a big dummy on that score alone. Hmm. Well, I, I find it so admirable that uh, while many people in your position would uh, choose to spend uh, uh, most of their time uh, sitting by the pool, relaxing and reflecting on their own successes, that uh, you are devoting so much time and energy to... Uh, wanting to make the world a better place. 
That reminds me of a joke I did about my dear friend Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet at a dinner not long ago. I wish they were honored in Los Angeles. Uh, I was the MC of the evening. And the kids have done marvelously well financially, too. They, they have incredible homes and, and riches beyond imagination. So I said one point in summing up the evening, I said, well, everybody knows these are among the greatest singers of the century. They're consummate, honored <coughs> entertainers. But I said, what many of you not realize is they also are responsible citizens, and they plan to leave this world a better place. They plan to leave it their place in Malibu, <laughs> their place in Beverly Hills, their place in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, it, it's sort of easy. There is that cliche to leave the world a better place. We all should. Some people who have a lot of power or money or fame or, you know, whatever, 19 automobiles, whatever it is that you have that's nice, you can use that to, to improve things, either for your nephew or for the Republican Party or the United States or however you slice it. So if you have that power, for God's sake, use it. It's really a very simple point. Hmm. Well, Steve Allen, this has uh, certainly been an enjoyable encounter with you, and I know that... Uh, Fun for me. Well, the people of southeastern Wisconsin look forward to encountering you in person. We, uh, we want to uh, just mention briefly that Steve Allen is on the campus of Carthage College today. He's going to be visiting several different classes, talking well, to students and so on. And I'm going to stop people on the sidewalk and ask them if they can say Carthage College five times fast. <laughs> Ooh, they could injure themselves, couldn't they? And uh, he'll be speaking at chapel this morning at 1030 and giving a free public performance uh, at Carthage in the Seabird Chapel tonight at 730 p.m., uh, with uh, lots of music and uh, lots of laughs and uh, lots of wisdom shared as well, I'm sure. And so we encourage you to take advantage of that. And then uh, tomorrow, Mr. Allen, after a few more visits to Carthage, is off to Wingspread to uh, take part in uh, the uh, conference there on civility. And uh, in the midst of that busy schedule, uh, we are grateful, Steve Allen, that you joined us on the morning show today. My pleasure indeed. Thank you. And Steve, you'll also want to know that Gregory Berg typed out all 101 ways to reason better and improve your mind in preparing for the interview today. <laughs> I'm certain are. he's a better oh, man for it. Great. Good <laughs> so, deal. Tomorrow on the morning show, uh, Professor John Bunker from uh, the UW Parkside History Department will be talking about a book that he has written about the history of Wisconsin and specifically uh, the progressive movement. In I Wisconsin. wish I could read that book or, or listen in tomorrow because that's a very important bit of social history in our country. Well, if you're up at uh, 8.05, you probably can <laughs> listen in, as a matter of fact. And then on Friday's morning show, uh, a fascinating exploration of the complex issue of uh, euthanasia and mercy killing from several different perspectives over that. Uh, I, used to do a, I used to do a comic character called Senator Philip Buster, a, a crazy <laughs> comedy nut. And Jane, as the inquiring reporter, once asked the, the senator that question, what do you think of euthanasia? He said, well, if those Japanese and Chinese kids... You know, want to do something. <laughs> they have every right, just like youth in the United States. <laughs> well, thank Don't you for to one. That. Yeah, <laughs> one more laugh. Thank you so much. We're uh, going to go out with a bit of Leroy Anderson as we approach nine o'clock on WGTD. Mm -hmm.